0: This is Stephen Rosen managing director and co-founder of High Tower Bethesda thanks for joining me today as I explore topics that I help arm you with the ability to make smart financial decisions okay well welcome back to the high tower podcast um, today is Thursday April 23rd happens to be a month from the most recent market bottoms that we had and we think it's kind of important to kind of talk about that. And so today what we've got um, is Brian Ledestro. Uh, Brian is a senior portfolio strategist from Prudential and has been somebody that we've spoken with uh, in our offices over several occasions. I thought he'd be a great person to bring on to the podcast to give some insight into what's been going on. Uh, in the fixed income markets, because they've been a little bit different than what we've seen uh, over the course of the past few weeks on the equity markets. And I think that's something to to keep in mind here as we kind of look to see what's going on in the future. And so I kind of asked Brian uh, to kind of give us some insights into how we got to where we were on March 23rd, which was the bottom of the markets, kind of where we are today, a month out, and kind of his outlook for where we think we're going to go uh, as we look ahead over the next several months. So Brian, thanks a lot for joining me. I really
1: appreciate it. Thanks for having Um, me. My pleasure. My pleasure.
0: Okay, so let's start off. Uh, We're a month from the bottoms. Um, Tell us how we got to where we are.
1: Yeah, uh, COVID. Um, This is is my 27th year uh, uh, being an investment professional. And in none of those years, and in all my years of studying prior to that, did I ever expect an engineered recession? And that's what we're experiencing now. We're, we're experiencing planned, centralized, economic uh, sort of, I'm going to use the word collapse. It's not really collapse, but the numbers we're going to see in terms of real GDP growth and uh, S&P earnings growth and deflation numbers will be absolutely staggering. Uh, I never would have imagined, ever, one, an engineered recession, and two, one that's going to be as deep as what we're about to experience. Now, the sort of the the lemonade from those lemons is that the deeper and further this, this near-term economic recession is, the sooner we can open our doors, go out of our houses, hug our neighbors, go to a restaurant, go to a movie theater. Um, But what you saw in the stock market tanking and in the bond market freezing up is that markets, clearly nobody expected a pandemic. Uh, Had this been January, I would have been talking about how U.S. real GDP was going to grow at maybe 2 percent, probably more like one and three quarters, and how the election was going to introduce some volatility into markets. Um, and out of left field, this virus has really changed the way we all live. Uh, I'm up here in Bergen County, New Jersey, which is sort of coronavirus central. And you can't go into a shopping market without a mask on your face. And everything is shut down. Uh, when you go to drive to the store, you know, you're the first and only car at the traffic light. Um, so, so life has changed dramatically, um, just regular life. Um, And from a capital market standpoint, things have changed dramatically too. So remember that in fixed income, you don't go to a centralized exchange like the nice or the NASDAQ. You have to call people on the phone in order to do trades and wall street is closed, right? Nobody is sitting on the desk at JP Morgan or Morgan Stanley. Uh, You know, wall street traders are sitting on their couches, petting their dogs. Um, And so, so the, the, Liquidity shock that we saw in uh, in Treasury bonds and mortgage bonds and investment grade corporates and high yield. I'm going to argue is probably orders of magnitude more drastic, more dramatic than what we saw even in the stock market. Um, recall that the VIX, which measures expected volatility, hit levels that we haven't seen since the Great Financial Crisis, um, and so. In in fixed income world, everything really starts with treasuries. Everything starts with treasuries. And the treasury market was broken, like completely and utterly broken.
0: But how does that happen?
1: Uh, Lack of liquidity. Nobody wants to buy. Nobody wants to sell. Um, I mean, you need cash in order to buy securities. And if your customers are, are telling you that they want to sell because they want to exit, because they want cash. There simply wasn't enough cash in the system. Please recall that prior to 2019, um, actually including 2019, the Fed was both quantitatively tightening as well as tightening monetary policy. All the way through 2018, we saw that. So with quantitative easing, what the Fed is doing is it's buying stuff from Wall Street. And when you buy stuff, you're giving them cash. Um, when you're quantitatively tightening, you're doing the exact opposite. You're taking cash out of the system. And so as the Fed's balance sheet fell from whatever it was, four and a half trillion at the peak, and it got down to like three and a half trillion, it means it sucked like a trillion dollars out of uh, out of the banking system. At the same time, it was hiking overnight rates. And so um, so monetary policy was perhaps a bit too tight, and we saw that manifest in that that whole repo situation in the beginning of the year when the repo market freaked out. So the Fed was a little bit too tight to begin with, and then when you get a full-on panic, there just simply isn't enough cash. And so one of the things that we uh, look at is something called the futures basis. Um, So treasury futures are contracts where you're going to deliver somebody a treasury bond in the future. Uh, and so, treasury futures and treasury cash bonds should behave very, 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 very similar because ultimately they do—they converge to be the same thing, right? Um, and the treasury futures basis was completely broken. It was uh, treasury futures were trading at a much, much, much lower yield than than cash treasury bonds, and on uh, on the run versus off the run treasury securities was. Uh, Something like four or five standard deviations, which is a very rare, very unexpected event. Uh, Something crazy like that. Um, You know, we were seeing 20, 30 basis point moves in 10-year notes where it normally moves at about four basis points per day with a standard deviation of about four basis points. And so you're looking at five standard deviations, four standard deviations. So really, really, really weird stuff. And so if the thing that all other things are based on is broken, you can only imagine that everything else that's downstream is broken too. Um, you know, the money markets were broken, front end corporates were broken, um, high yield got broken, um, you know, even Fannie, Freddie, uh, Ginny mortgage backed securities, they were trading at sort of near record levels. Um, and quite frankly, in fixed income, we haven't fully retraced. I know we haven't fully retraced in stocks. I think stocks are something like fifty percent, fifty percent back. Um, there are places I'm looking in fixed income. Uh, let's see, uh, emerging markets has only w- retraced about twenty percent of uh, of, it, of its wides. Uh, Let's see. High yield is about 40% back from where it had been. So there's still a lot of wood to chop. Luckily, the Fed has come in like, uh, you know, like riding on a white horse, pulling a wagon full of money (laughs) and right big liquidity injections in treasury bonds. They've purchased, I don't know, a trillion and a half or they're on their, they're on their way to that and more. And they've purchased a couple of hundred billion in, in mortgage bonds. Um, they've started to buy uh, investment-grade corporate bonds. They dusted off the old TALF playbook, and they're going to do 100 billion of financing of structured, uh, structured bonds like CLOs and CMBS, which were which were outside of the former playbook. So they're 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 bringing in some new plays, like buying um, buying fallen angels, which is something they had never done. Buying corporate investment grade is something that they hadn't done, and now they're even going to buy high-yield ETFs. Um, The good news for fixed-income credit investors is that none of this buying has happened yet. Um, A lot of these markets were cured by simply the announcement of them, which I equate to when I was a child and I was behaving poorly, all my mother had to do was say, Bri, wait till your father gets home, and that was enough to straighten me out. (laughs) Um, And so the Fed announcing all of these big programs is akin to wait till your father gets home. So you definitely don't want to be short the stuff that the Fed is going to be buying. Uh, Being on the long side of that stuff, if you skate to where the puck is going, they will be buying front-end corps. Uh, They will be buying, again, some high-yield ETFs and some fallen angels. Uh, And in our collective opinion, we think that that's likely to provide... Um, You'll need less liquidity premium, which is good, so that helps your price. Um, And it also uh, enhances the credit worthiness of some of these folks by providing them loans, uh, by providing, again, additional liquidity, it actually helps to to cure some of the credit.
0: So, as we headed into the beginning of this year, again, uh, talked about GDP probably being something in the 2% range, we're having good steady growth. Presidential election, something that could possibly, you know, create some additional volatility, but credit spreads in general were exceptionally tight across the board. Uh, Twenty. 19 saw interest rates decline dramatically. And so, can you talk a little bit about maybe sort of the beginning of the year, where you guys were positioned, where you maybe saw some risks, um, how those assets kind of played out throughout this entire picture? Um, and then maybe we'll talk about looking ahead, how you kind of benefit to your point. Um, with respect to A, where the Fed is going. Uh, you know We always have the proverbial don't fight the Fed, so why are we going to start fighting the Fed here? But I also think that a lot of people don't recognize a lot of the nuances that are inside of the fixed income markets whereby there's a lot of mispricing out there and there's a lot of great opportunity. Uh, I know we're not going to sit here and discuss individual names, but there's definitely segments of the market um, that I think from conversations with you as well as many other fixed income strategists, uh, people see that this has been an opportunity that we have not seen in the fixed income world probably since the global financial crisis.
1: Yeah, well, I would uh, I would very much agree with that. So um, we came into this year um, overweight interest rate risk, but not by a lot. Um, we have been sort of proverbially. Um, uh, differentiated versus our peers by uh, by having on this, what's called duration overweight, which just simply means that we have more sensitivity to the changes in interest rates than our benchmark and our peers. Uh, we've been uh, sort of perennially overweight, uh, thinking and, and quite frankly being right that the economy is going to be slower in the future, uh, and it sort of peaked in 2018. So in 2019, we were overweight U.S. interest rate risk, uh, and of course that has uh, that has helped us this year as interest rates have gone down, down, down. In terms of credit risk, uh, you mentioned that spreads were not—they weren't at all time tights, but they were sort of tighter than uh, tighter than you would think would be like um, uh, tighter than we were enthusiastic about. Let's say that. So coming in the year, we were at about 65% of our available credit risk, uh, active credit risk within our flagship fund, at least, I should say. Um, And so we would have expected, quite frankly, to have performed better uh, than we did. And I think a lot of what happened is twofold. the structured finance market, and by that I'm talking about CLOs and CMBS and asset-backed securities, um, we tend to prefer the AAA stuff. So genuine money good, bomb-proof credit worthiness, uh, the real risk to principal loss is mathematically as close to zero as, uh, as possible. And so you would have thought that in a crisis such as this, that those securities would have behaved better, that they would have behaved like triple A's. And quite frankly, they didn't. So um, so we were sort of, uh, on the one hand, what we got right was that we had less credit risk on. Uh, what we got wrong is that we still had credit risk on. And so we did have some high yield. Granted, we had maybe a third of the amount that we had going through uh, 2018 um, you know, we had some active emerging markets exposure and emerging markets have behaved really poorly uh, and, and, again, really haven't made back any of those gains. Um, so, so you would expect in a contagion, in sort of this, this a crisis-like environment, that Treasury yields would go lower, um, which, again, we got right. Um, now, looking forward you know, it seems to us that we are sort of near the peak or perhaps even past the peak of COVID cases uh, at the increase in COVID cases at this point. So that really means that we are at the nadir sort of of, of real economic activity. This is as bad as it, as it gets, you know, April versus March and March versus February. This is as bad as it's going to be. And, and I'll bet you dollars to donuts that if you look at growth uh, in December, versus growth in january that that number will be higher than the number of growth in april versus march so it's akin to being in a really bad storm i mean a bad black tornado meets hurricane kind of a thing it sounds like a stupid kids movie like a sharknado but a a tornado meets a hurricane but you can see out in the horizon that there's a rainbow and there's blue skies uh, and that's why I think that, that most markets have already, uh, they've already troughed, they're looking out into the future. Um, so to your point, what do I expect in the future? I expect that high yield spreads are likely to tighten, not to where we were in, uh, in December of last year, um, but the direction is that spreads should go down and prices should come up a bit, especially with the, the technical of the Fed buying. Now, one of the things that worries us is the, so that the length of runway, the time and distance of COVID is really going to have a a significant impact on high yield. Um, We fully expect that default rates are going to, uh, they're going to jump orders of magnitude higher than we would have predicted even in January. Um, Led by energy, high yield, um, just, I mean, it's being decimated by the price of oil and these folks who are already highly levered and their balance sheets are highly levered to the price of the commodity, um, it it, it just doesn't seem survivable for a lot of those folks. Same thing, if we're still here, uh, sheltered in place a year from now, you're going to see some devastation in in high yield securities. There will be default. By the
0: way, if if if, if we're still in shelter-in-place a year from now, you're going to see some devastation in my house, <laughs> let alone the economy. So let's yeah. let's just hope that that's not the case. Yeah.
1: Uh, I might I might run out of liquor by then. God forbid. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. Yeah. So, but that doesn't seem likely, right? This is very modelable kind of stuff, right? Uh, COVID looks like SARS and MERS, and you know, uh, and when you model the U.S.'s COVID uh, uh, infection rate and mortality rate, um, we are trending like the average of the rest of the world's cases. So we're not an anomaly. Um, we look like the rest of the world. We're following the rest of the world's curve, and so it, it seems to us that the peak cases are now, and a couple of months from now, two or three months. Uh, we get a semblance of normalcy and then people you know like punks at Tawny Phil they sort of you know they they come out of their house they look around they take a you know a wet finger in the air what's going on do i feel safe can i go to a restaurant can i go on a cruise ship can i go on an airplane um and then this thing becomes a you know it's not a not a bad dream a bad reality followed by a normal reality or at least a kind of normal reality. Do I think that, I think that people are going to get back on airplanes to go on vacations in, in July? Um, yeah, I do. But I don't think it'll be the same number that would have gotten on that plane um, planning a July vacation in, in January.
0: So one thing that I've always been a believer of is that the bond guys are smarter than the stock guys. Maybe it's just the nature of who they are, the way they think. Um, but that's kind of always been it. And I've always kind of taken my cues from an economic standpoint, from a market standpoint, from the fixed income markets and what concerns me a little bit, and maybe it's a function that I'd say the stock market overshot and maybe it didn't need to be down 35% and 45% on the small caps. But on the other hand, when we take a look at some of the the anecdotal notes that I've seen, bank loans trading down 20-plus percent. Um, I've heard anecdotal stories of high-quality, big-name investment-grade bonds trading at 75 cents on the dollar, because again, to your point, people are looking at liquidity. Um, Agency mortgage-backed bonds trading off three points when that is something, from a standard deviation standpoint, unheard of. Non-agencies down 20%. So, the It seems like the shock within the fixed income world because of that need for liquidity, um, big corporations drawing down bank loans, people over levered as they always are to these securities, um, people scrambling for cash, margin calls, everything that drives the pricing of all these things down, um, the fixed income market got hit really, really hard. The equity market got hit really, really hard, but it seems like, in general, the equity market has stabilized and recovered, for the time being, again, let's just say for the time being, recovered more than what we're seeing in the fixed income market, and that kind of perplexes me to some extent, and it worries me to some extent, because why is money not flowing from the fixed income investors? into these securities? Why are we not seeing a larger snapback from these completely oversold levels the same way we have in the equity markets?
1: Well, I think part of it is technical that um, that stocks fell a lot more than bonds, right? Treasury bonds rallied and mortgages while they were having multiple standard deviation downdrafts um, have, have largely recovered. And remember, a lot of that is Fed intervention, right? So the Fed is buying, so it's keeping interest rates, base rates low. It's keeping mortgage spreads normal. Um, And because of that, you're getting really big pension fund rebalancing. And so you've got folks selling bonds to buy stocks, and that's why you're getting a bigger rebound in stocks than bonds. And I think that's natural, and I think that that's healthy. Um, and, And so you sort of mentioned as well, bond guys, you know, I always joke around. I say bond guys are smart and stock guys are tall and good looking and have great hair and you know are married to really hot women kind of a thing. I don't know if I can say that on a podcast, but right. But bond guys are smart. And and the reason why we, we seem smart is because it's very mathematical, right? Fixed income, binary, uh, binary outcomes. You either get paid principal and interest on time like clockwork or you don't. Only two different options. And right. and because of that Mathematics, it does a very good job at describing the future paths that uh, that that these securities are going to take. Um, and so I think uh, right now, I don't know if you can take much uh, um, much stock in what the bond market is telling you because it's so heavily intervened in right now. Um, the Fed is is buying down rates and you know tens at sixty bips and the long bond at one hundred and twenty. Um, I don't know if there's a lot of information in that. What I'll tell you is that for the first time in a decade, we're talking about getting underweight interest rate risk, um, because if, if, uh, if you take everything I'm, I'm talking about and put it together in a, um, in a mosaic theory, by the end of the year, things should be returned close to normal. Not, not exactly normal, but in that direction. What does that mean? It means that credit spreads should be tighter, uh, businesses will be open, the unemployment rate will drop, the rate of inflation is going to increase, um, and now I'm not talking even about organic uh, organic inflation, right? We're going to have artificial hyper-massive deflation right now, engineered deflation. And you, you know what, Steve, you know what happens after deflation? What do you get? You get inflation. Right, and so even the price of oil going from fifteen to thirty means a hundred percent increase. And when you're looking at CPI headline, it's going to be it's going to be big numbers down and big numbers up. Same thing with real GDP. We're going to get like a minus thirty or a minus forty, and then at some point you're going to get a snapback plus fifteen. So the numbers that you're seeing are no longer useful in terms of information. Um, I'll give you another for example: S and P earnings, right? The S and P is now trading at twenty times earnings, right? Twenty time, twenty times what? That twenty times trailing earnings. If earnings get halved in the next quarter or two, all of a sudden now your multiple is at forty to one. I don't know many people who would want to buy stocks at forty to one in the middle of a pandemic, um, and so you know it's a good long term buy because we will get back to the economy of twenty nineteen, the high water mark. We will. The only question is when probably not going to be in 2020. I'll bet you dollars to donuts there. Um, even if it's not 2021 by 2022, we get back to that level and you're buying stocks and you're buying things like high yield and investment grade corporates, uh, at pretty deep discounts to, to their future value. So if you're a long term investor, it's a great time to be deploying cash. If you're a short term investor, um, all I have to say is that, you know, get used to some volatility and, and you know, weak hands t- tend to get shaken out amidst high volatility. Um, so how do you mitigate volatility? Harry Markowitz taught, taught us this in 1952. You diversify, right? I don't think you should put all your fixed income in things like bank loans and or high yield. Um, I don't think you should be naked to treasuries and mortgages, but I do think that interest rates... In the U.S. will be higher in the future than they are now. So remember the Fed at some point is going to stop buying treasuries and the treasury department, at least as far as I can see, isn't going to stop issuing these things to fund massive deficits. I mean hyper massive deficits. And so you were going to have the positive technical now turns into a really ugly technical in the future and you're not well enough compensated for that in in the current treasury bond space, so you have to look for value elsewhere.
0: So let's just talk about interest rates for a minute. Um, we've seen one thing that we've written about, um, and you and I have actually talked about this, is let's call it the spread of German boons to ten-year U.S. ten-year treasuries. Um, I think at peak. They were probably somewhere around 280 basis points. Um, historically, a lot less than that, probably half to a third. We've seen the boond I guess you'd say decline, but technically increase in yield because it's certainly not as negative as it was. The U.S. 10-year treasury now at 60 basis points. So that spread has kind of normalized a lot. Do you think that the negative interest rate game... Um, is kind of over. Because if it's not, is there room for the U.S. 10-year Treasury to decline, which would, again, increase in, in, in price? Or do you think you know, that what, 38 basis point we saw one day or 40 basis points we saw one day in March, uh, do you think that's the low yield that we've seen?
1: Um, well, one, you don't fight the Fed. Um, uh, depending on how acute this COVID thing uh, gets and remains, and how how desperate the economy falls into. I think you could see the treasury continue to buy, and yields continue to fall. Um, do I? Th- I don't think that the Fed would buy us into negative rate land. Personally, I'll have to talk to some folks at the shop about that. Um, we're pretty confident uh, around the office that the Fed wouldn't take the policy rate negative. Um, that's a pretty uh, pretty strongly held view. Um, do I think that they'd buy the 10-year like like negatively slope the curve? So if you're at zero uh, and you're looking at inversion, it necessitates that your bonds are through zero. I don't think the Fed would buy us through there. I think that they would sort of taper their purchases to keep us uh, pretty flat and low. Um, so. I think negative rates are going to be around in Europe for a long time. Their policy rate is negative. They've, the ECB is still uh, voracious buyers of bonds. Um, so so I think negative rates, uh, last I looked, there was something like $13 trillion worth of negative yielding uh, securities. Uh, so remember, uh, the world's population is aging, and we have big debt dynamics, which means that You know, taxes need to go up to pay for these massive deficits, and that leaves people with less disposable income and therefore less real GDP growth. Um, That's the normal world that we live in. Um, And, you know, interest rates are simply the price of money. Um, You know, when you have more borrowers than lenders, the price goes up. When you have more lenders than borrowers, the price goes down. And so what does negative 13 trillion in yield means? It means the world is awash in lenders. It's so awash in lenders that you're willing to pay people for the privilege of lending to them. And, right. Yeah. And so this, these are sort of anomalous, and by anomalous, I mean relative to sort of orthodoxy and textbook kind of stuff, right? They, they didn't have this stuff when I, was, you know, when I was in university. It just wasn't in the textbooks, but it is part of the new normal. Um, I don't necessarily see that coming to the shores of the U.S., at least with regards to monetary policy. Uh, perhaps coronavirus crisis, if this thing again, if we're here talking about this 12 months from now, I think you're probably going to see spots on the U.S. curve that look more like uh, the German curve.
0: Okay. All right. So now we're a month out uh, from you know what hopefully is the bottom. Um, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with friends. I've had a lot of conversations with clients. Um, I'm tracking what's going on in Europe with respect to, um, new cases. I think they are, you know, in most cases, two, three weeks ahead of where we are. And so kind of getting a sense of the success rate there of the social distancing, seeing what's going to start to happen with their economies and cases as they start to open up, though we've got some people here in the U.S. who are doing so, but that's a story for another day, um. So I, I think we're going to have a good look ahead to see what's going on, but let's take for argument's sake, um, I think what both you and I think, which is we've probably seen the worst of it. Uh, new cases will continue to grow, but we've probably seen some peak level. Um, hopefully somewhere within maybe the next 30 or 60 days, um, we can comfortably start um getting about our lives, not going about our lives, but getting about our lives. And so when you take a look at the landscape of fixed income, what are probably, let's say, maybe your top five uh, spots that you think present itself from a value standpoint, risk-reward standpoint? Um, Going forward over the next twelve to eighteen months, because again, I think to your point, anything you buy today, whether it be stock or bond, um, you kind of have to hold your nose a little bit and just say, "Hey, I'm going to take the mindset that any historically speaking, um, when you buy markets down twenty percent, thirty percent, at some point in time, you are proven to be correct. We don't know when that time is going to be. We're not going to say it's today or tomorrow, but at some point in time, you are generally proven to be." Correct, and so with that understanding, um, we haven't seen a massive rebound in a lot of sectors. Again, to your point, treasuries you have, um, agency bonds you have, but in a lot of the other segments of the market, you've seen little bounces back, but nothing super super meaningful. So, what are you looking
1: at? Investment grade corporates feel um, so. You know, long corporates, the uh, Bloomberg Barclays long corporate index at one point was down more than the S and P. I believe it lost 35, pers- 35 points on price. 35 points. Just, you
0: know, week w- we've been writing, um, not to cut you off, but we've been writing since this thing started a weekly letter to our clients. And week one, the one thing I mentioned was LQD. Again, we're not talking about investing, but it was the it's an investment grade uh, ETF that measures a bond, the the investment grade bond index. It's just an index fund um, that we had noticed was down about 28 percent, had gone from I think 135 to and closed at 105. Um, Similar concept for a municipal bond ETF um, did a similar thing. And that weekend, um, the Fed came in with their first major injection, um, and I think that particular fund opened up seven or eight uh, percent immediately, and is not too far off its its highs. So again, to your point, um, yeah, there's been a lot of movement,
1: massive dislocations. Things are not supposed to move eight points a day in bond land. That's just not supposed to happen. So, so it feels to us like corporates um, are in good. Uh, are good value still. Um, we love front-end corporates because that's where the Fed is going to be concentrating uh, its purchases. Um, one of the things that that my team does really, 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 really well is uh, is credit research. Uh, you know, we have, uh, to to my guesstimation, we have the largest buy-side credit research staff on planet Earth, uh, and so they're good at uh, sort of. Uh, separating the wheat from the chaff kind of a thing and what we want to do is find companies that are going to survive this and, and, and come out of it in better shape. And so in any kind of a crisis, um, what tends to happen is that CEOs and CFOs start managing for the bondholders and not the shareholders. Um, And that prevents them from getting downgraded and from, you know, you get downgraded and your cost of interest increases and your spreads blow out and you have to pay more for capital. Um, And so we're starting to see that, right? I think we're going to see fewer share buybacks and perhaps some dividends getting cut and perhaps some smarter and or reduced capex kinds of things. Um, And doing that should, should again, firm up uh, credit worthiness. Uh, I think, uh, I think we had gone through periods where leverage in, in investment grade had gotten, uh, had gotten too high. Uh, we're seeing tons and tons and tons of fallen angels, and that's a place that we absolutely love to play in. Um. You know, we've already seen a couple. You know, over a hundred billion dollars worth of fallen angels. Uh, some shops are calling for as much as half a trillion. We'd be more in the two to three hundred billion kind of area, um, but that's a space that that we love playing in because we have uh, we've got really strong folks both in investment grade corporate, uh, both credit research as well as portfolio management. Same with high yield, right? So we're not a specialty shop where we only do high yield or we specialize in investment grade. We do them both. And so we're well positioned to win. Uh, so Fallen Angels uh, is, is a place where uh, we're enthusiastic. Again, investment grade corporates, we're enthusiastic. Um, over the next 24 months, high yield feels like it's in really good shape. Over the next 12 months, it's it's a bit of a pick-em, um, Again, it's going to be coronavirus and energy price dependent. So non-energy high yield, you know, if if you can if you can find bonds again, you know, yields on the index are over eight percent, and yields in Germany are minus fifty. Um, and so again, I think you're going to. I think uh, high yield is going to attract a lot of investors, especially with Fed injections. Um, You know, loaning money to the fallen angels, buying high-yield ETFs, I think that firms up the technicals. And if the fundamentals, uh, again, if you and I, uh, we're we're, we're in a similar frame of mind in terms of when this thing improves, let's say we get a vaccine, let's say we get a cure over the summer, Um, I think you're going to gap tighter in terms of spreads. Uh, and I think stocks will gap higher and the VIX will crater and we can all sort of go about our lives. So again, high yield feels cheap over 24 months, most assuredly over 12 months. Uh, your guess is as good as mine. Um, uh, structured bonds, CLOs, A CLOs and AAA CMBS, uh, they are now health eligible. And so those securities which had lost you know, 15, 20 points have already rallied in. There is still quite a bit of value, they're still trading uh, certainly off their wides uh, in terms of spread, but also off their tights uh, in terms of spread. So there's definitely some value there as well. Um, One of the places we're a bit, um, uh, I should say, we're less enthusiastic about is emerging markets debt. Um, You know, there's less healthcare infrastructure there, and their central banks certainly aren't as powerful as the Fed, the ECB, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan. Uh, and so they simply have fewer choices, and so therefore there's a bit of a a real genuine fundamental uh, change in their risk uh, profile there.
0: Okay, and they also are traditionally not always, but traditionally um, more susceptible. Uh, the, a lot of the emerging market countries are energy related, Yes. And so I would I would assume from from what we've seen in the oil markets, uh, definitely kind of creates some further issues from that standpoint. So. Last question that I think I have, um, although I usually end our meetings saying that there's going to be last questions and then somehow (laughs) some way I end up with another one. So uh, we'll try to make this the last one. But you mentioned that a lot of comfort was received in the fixed income market just by the notion that the Fed was going to be there to make purchases, okay? Corporate bonds, high-yield bonds, um, agencies, structured credit. I mean, basically everything under the sun for the most part. But yet they haven't really started to make any massive purchases. What's going to be the impetus for them to actually go make those purchases? Um, Do you see a scenario whereby things have settled down a lot, uh, liquidity is starting to come back into place where maybe they don't even go out? and make those purchases. It's the fact that, hey, everyone knows they're there in case they need to. So they're a little bit more comfortable buying. Uh, A lot of the deleveraging has already occurred. I I know I saw a stat last week that I believe after, and you probably know this better, um, averaging somewhere I think, $60 billion of outflows from fixed income mutual funds. I think we finally saw $1 billion of inflows last week. So things are stabilizing. And so do you see a scenario whereby the Fed doesn't even have to go out and buy these things? To your point, it's just the mere fact that they're there uh, is providing the support.
1: Oh, well, I think there's there's a little of both. So, so there's two factors that the Fed buying provides. Factor number one is the animal spirits factor. Um, hey, this is really good. The Fed put is in place. That makes me feel more confident um, being a buyer and not being a fourth seller. That's great. And the second part is the actual liquidity that it provides. And so what the Fed has already done is, you know, the former has already taken place. The latter has not yet taken place in a lot of, in a lot of cases. Uh, I know they've been buying you know, commercial paper uh, and the, the money market facility and treasuries and mortgages they have been buying. Um, I don't think they've started corporates unless that started at some point this week and they haven't started buying the high yield. So, so, so the psyche of investors is very much improved, but the liquidity aspect hasn't yet been improved. Um, so, so we're sort of halfway there, so to speak. Um, do I think that they ultimately will buy muni?s Yes. Do so I think they ultimately will buy high yield bonds and some fallen angels and uh, you know they'll start loaning on the TALF program? Yes, I do. Um, do I think that they get to the magnitude that they have promised? Not necessarily. Um, uh, my understanding is that they've talked about taking the balance sheet up to up to ten trillion. Do they get there? Probably not. I don't think they'll need all of that if our if our timing is right on all this. So. Uh, I think they will buy everything they've said they're going to, bought, uh, to buy. I just think that the magnitude is, is going to be far less than, than the fully ascribed uh, uh, serving size.
0: Got it. And yeah, I, I I misspoke when I say they have been buying. I was more focusing on the non traditional assets that they hadn't bought historically. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, being like you said, the high yield, the mm-hmm. fallen angels, corporates in some significant manner. So, um, yeah. So that was great, Brian. Uh, as always, uh, great conversations. I'm glad that our. Uh, clients and friends and, and listeners uh, will get to hear from you. Um, so I hope that they do tune in. Um, but I know from my standpoint, I always enjoy our conversations. Um, insightful, fun, interesting, entertaining. So I really, really, really appreciate you joining me today. Um, and hopefully we'll have you back.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, that concludes today's podcast. We really appreciate you joining us. Brian, thanks again. And for those who want to, please check out some of the other podcasts we have on our channel. And also for other content and information about us, please feel free to visit our website at www.hightowerbethesda.com. Thanks a lot. And we look forward to being back with you shortly. Hightower Bethesda is a group of investment professionals registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, And with Hightower Advisors LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced here and will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this podcast is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. Hightower Bethesda and Hightower shall not be in any way liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for the statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of Hightower Bethesda and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.